Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 4, a general overview of the entire chapter, the principles that were laid out there, and I want to begin at verse 4 and read through verse 13. Hear the Word of God. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our heart's desire to say amen to it, to learn from it, and to know how our lives need to conform. We pray that you would uh, enable me to uh, preach the word faithfully in each one of us, to rejoice in it and to live it out. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start this uh, sermon by saying that I really do enter into a subject like this with fear and trembling. Um, James chapter 3, verse 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you be teachers, knowing that we will receive the stricter judgment. And obviously, I don't want to be judged by the Lord. And so, I have entered this subject uh, slowly, very deliberately, carefully. I've actually studied the subject of tongues for 30 years, but I recognize I'm not infallible. And so, you still are responsible to be Bereans and to check out everything that I say according to the Word of God. Eat the corn, throw out any corn cob that may inadvertently creep in. I don't think there's any corn cob here, otherwise I wouldn't be preaching it. But uh, you are still responsible to be Bereans. And I do have friends who strongly disagree with uh, me on this, on actually uh, both sides of the question. I've got friends uh, who are Reformed and some dispensationalist friends who say there are no more spiritual gifts, there are no miracles, and uh, I think it's a wrong approach to take. On the other hand, I have uh, friends who say that all of the spiritual gifts continue to apply. There's nothing that's passed away, and every believer ought to experience all of the things all of the time. And uh, miracles ought to be a daily occurrence in your life. And so I'm probably going to be hit up on uh, both sides, uh, you know, after the sermon this morning. But I hope you're going to see this morning, I really am trying to be driven uh, by the Scripture and the Scripture alone. And yet I recognize good men disagree on this. And so I'm entering into this, hopefully with not too much arrogance, uh, with a degree of uh, humility. I myself have had experiences that appear to contradict the Scripture, but I don't follow my experience. I say, well, I'm just going to put that on the back burner. I don't know how to understand that. But my experiences are not infallible, and they cannot dictate what the Scriptures mean. On the other hand, I've had lack of experiences, which could be very tempting to allow those to color my interpretation. And uh, neither my experiences or lack of experiences nor your experiences or lack of experiences are infallible. And so I really would challenge you 
to examine the Scripture and be willing to be challenged from the Scripture and to think these principles through. And uh, uh, hopefully by the end of this week and um, the next sermon that I preach, which I guess won't be next week, I'm going to be up in Minnesota, but hopefully you'll have a really solid grasp of what the Scriptures say about the subject. It's a very controversial subject, and I think it's important that we be educated on it. So do be faithful to hold my feet to the fire if I'm not backing up everything I say from the Scripture. I think you will be faithful to do that. I know every sermon, uh, uh, Larry Nolte goes home, boy, he goes through the concordance, you know, and he's uh, searching these things out, and that's good. I also want to explain why I am unwilling to take positions on the subject that may seem logically valid but are not logically necessary. And I think way too many Reformed people do this. I'm going to be hitting up some of the charismatics later on in the service, but I think we need to start by challenging our own ranks and saying, are we going too far? Are we going beyond what the Scriptures uh, say? Here's a typical argument that a Reformed person might give. Premise number one. Apostleship and prophecy have ceased in the first century. I happen to hold to that premise. Uh, I think, uh, what was it, three weeks ago, I think I gave very clear testimony to the fact that prophecy and apostleship have ceased. That's premise number one. Premise two, they correctly point out that 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, uses the phrase, signs of an apostle, to describe signs and wonders, to describe miracles. And... Um, I do believe that those miracles or those signs and wonders were indeed signs of an apostle. Now, if it could be demonstrated that all miracles had only the function of being signs of an apostle, then their conclusion does follow through. Their conclusion is, since apostleship has ceased and since miracles are signs of an apostle, well, that means that miracles have ceased as well. Why would you need signs of an apostle if there aren't any apostles around any longer? And that's a very typical Reformed argument and very typical dispensational argument. The older Reformed people did not fall into that fallacy. And I say it's a fallacy because premise number two is faulty. If signs and wonders only had the function of being signs of an apostle, why did people who were not apostles perform miracles? There's tons of miracles in the Bible that were performed by non-apostles. And they might respond, well, okay, we'll expand that a little bit. They're signs of apostles and prophets, and both those offices cease, so miracles cease too, right? And uh, they'll even be willing to admit they're signs that authenticated Christ's claims to be a Messiah. But in order to make that admission, they're making the admission that 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 is not saying that the only function miracles have was to be signs of an apostle, Okay. Uh, it did serve that purpose, it's obvious, I agree with that, but uh, it had other uh, features as well. And if you take out the word only, they do not have an argument. Okay, It's not only signs of an apostle. Let me give you some other uh, things that it was signs for. Scripture says it was signs that a prophet was truly a prophet sent by the Lord. It was signs we've already seen that authenticated Christ's claims to be the Messiah. Last week we saw that even the temple was authenticated with a miracle because people might have been nervous. God commanded the tabernacle. Are, we, are you sure we're allowed to worship in this temple? And so God authenticates it. He causes fire to fall down from heaven to consume the sacrifice. He moves his glory cloud right into the, into the temple. And so, okay, God's authenticated it. Um, 
he authenticates believers to be servers of the one true and living God. In other words, miracles can be authentication of anything that God wants to say. Yes, I approve of this thing or I approve of this person. But it's not only for authentication. It's sometimes just given to bless his people. Psalm 103 you know, the Lord daily loads us with benefits, who heals all our diseases. There's so many scriptures that talk about that. And what I want you to do, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. Here Jesus claims that ordinary believers are going to be having signs and wonders in their lives. Now, some people automatically dismiss this passage, and you can turn to others, but they dismiss it and they say, well, that's not part of the Scripture anyway. And it really makes me mad when they do this because uh, uh, <laughs> they are doing it on the flimsiest of evidence, but they say the oldest and the best manuscripts leave out verses 9 through 20. Uh, look at the marginal note, though, um, at, at verse 9 in the New King James. It says... Verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in the NU. NU is the critical Greek text that most modern versions, not the New King James, but most modern versions are based on. So they're bracketed in the NU is not in the original text. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. Actually, if you pick up my book on textual criticism, I've got a picture in there of that page from Sinaiticus that shows originally it had it and it was poorly erased. There's a big gap that had those verses, right? The, uh, you know, just the exact amount of space that was needed. But uh, that booklet is designed to show that God has preserved his word in every age and we can bank on it. We can rely upon it. But anyway, let me just read that to you. Uh, verses 16 through 18. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe shall be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. And so here he's saying, it's not authenticating apostles. You know, this is something that God is blessing believers with, ordinary believers. And the response might be by some Reformed people, well, the reason these ordinary believers were able to have that is because the apostles were hanging around. And then you show them private miracles where no apostles, no prophets were around, and you begin to realize this is really far removed from premise number two in their argument. And so what uh, some dispensationalists and Reformed people uh, do is they admit that the miracles were broadly distributed, but they only came during three periods of history, and they came because those three periods of history were the periods when God brought revelation. He gave the scriptures, and it was to authenticate those scriptures. Um, never mind the fact that there were a lot of people who got those miracles who weren't even related to the giving of the new revelation, but let me quote John MacArthur here, and he's a wonderful man, godly man. I don't want to put him down in any way. I've benefited greatly from his writings, but he's just flat out wrong on this. Uh, he says, most biblical miracles happened in three relatively brief periods of biblical history. In the days of Moses and Joshua, during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and in the time of Christ and the apostles. 
And then he goes on to say that the purpose was to authenticate new revelation. Now, what he is doing here is he's making dogmatic statements not based on clear statements of Scripture, but on a theory of how these miracles were grouped together. And even there you've got many problems because in the second period of that grouping that he cites, there really wasn't any written revelation that was given. And second, Jack Deere and other charismatics have listed out in chart form the miracles of the Bible. And you see, man, they're across every period of history, way outside those three groupings that are given. And uh, I think it's very important. We're not going to have a strong argument against the abuses in the charismatic movement if we do things like that. We're not going to be credible. I think we've got to stick to the Scripture and the Scriptures alone. Now, let me give you the bottom line. Here's my caution. Don't base your theories on deductions that may seem valid, if this and this and this was in place, but may seem valid, but are not logically necessary. Back everything up with the clear scriptural references. And I'm convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that God continues to be a God of miracles. And uh, uh, neither the abuses of charismatics or the rationalism of uh, other skeptics changes what the Scripture has to say. Scripture, if it only says so much, I think we need to re restrict our dogmatism to what it has to say. So that, by way of introduction, uh, we've already seen, I think, very clearly that inspired revelation has ceased in 70 AD, that... Prophecy and apostleship have ceased. Let's see what it has to say about tongues. And let's start in Acts chapter 2, and let's begin at verse 4. It says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the second half of that verse contradicts two misconceptions that I have heard over and over again. The first misconception is that what was going on in the uh, Acts chapter 2 was not the gift of tongues, but the gift of hearing. And you've maybe heard uh, that theory before. On this view, and I found out last week even R.C. Sproul holds to that, so there's non-charismatics that um, uh, hold to this view as well, uh, but mainly charismatics. On this view, the disciples were speaking either in Hebrew or Aramaic, but those who were listening were hearing what they were saying in their own language. And so uh, when somebody was listening to Peter, Peter was speaking in Hebrew, and an Arab heard it in Arabic, and a Roman heard it in Latin, and a uh, Parthian heard it in Persian, and a Phrygian heard it in the Pr Phrygian language, whatever that language was. They were hearing it in their own language, even though he was just speaking and hearing. And so the miracle was not with the lips of Peter. The miracle was with the hearing. That's the theory uh, that, they, that they hold out there. And like I say, there are both charismatics and non-charismatics that hold to that. There's two or three variations of it, but all of them insist what's going on in Acts chapter 2 is totally different from what's going on in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And you can see why they have to hold to that interpretation because their view of what's happening in 1 Corinthians is utterly, utterly different. It bears no resemblance to Acts chapter 2 tongues. No resemblance whatsoever. And so they go out of their way trying to explain how the two passages are, are different. Now, just think about that. Before we even start analyzing the text, is that really reasonable? When the Gospels prophesy that God's going to give tongues, then it's fulfilled in Acts and it's called tongues. Then the only other place in the New Testament that refers to 
the, the word tongues in the epistles is now an utterly different phenomenon than what happened in Acts. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I don't think the Bible was written to confuse. I think it was meant to clarify. And I think that 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 was Paul's inspired interpretation of what's going on in, in the book of Acts. And so, <clears throat> uh, here is their argument. Let me, let me try to present it the best way that I can. They say that the text does not say that the disciples spoke in other languages, but that the foreigners heard them speak in their language. For example, look at verse 6, last phrase, everyone heard them speak in his own language. Second, these foreigners can somehow recognize that the Jews are Galileans. How in the world would they be able to recognize that they're Galileans if they didn't hear them speaking in the Galilean accent of Hebrew? And yet somehow they are also able to recognize that they're speaking Hebrew. How come I'm hearing it in another language? Verse 7, then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? So to them, that implies that they're speaking in the Galilean dialect. And yet verse 8 says, How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And so what they say that this implies is that any given person who was speaking, uh, was being heard, I should say, speak in these other languages, they're speaking in Hebrew and every other person is hearing it in a different language. The Parthians are hearing it in Persian, and the Romans hearing it in, in Latin. So that's the argument that they, that they are holding to. Third, it's argued that those who can't understand what is being said in verse 13 haven't been given the gift of hearing. Otherwise, they, you know, why couldn't they understand what was being said? And then lastly, they argue that it's physically impossible for 12 apostles to be speaking in all the languages of the world. So I want to just very quickly respond to that. I would say, first of all, well, of course, the foreigners hear it in their own language, but the reason they hear it in their own language is because it's being spoken in their own language. That's the reason they hear it. Verse 4, they began to speak with other tongues. So it wasn't just that the languages were heard, those languages were coming out of their mouths. And even verse 6, which they emphasize to say that the foreigners heard it, that also says that the disciples spoke it. Uh, didn't say that the they thought the disciples were speaking in those languages. Uh, it says that they did indeed so speak. And so you can emphasize the word here all you want. It still says everyone heard them speak in his own language. In verse 11, in the middle, we hear them speaking in our own tongues. Now, as to the argument that it would be impossible for 12 apostles to speak in all the languages of the world, I would remind you that verse 1 says that all the disciples were present. Verse 4 says they were all filled with the Spirit and they all spoke in tongues. And so even if that all only refers to the 120 male leaders that were present, that's still a lot of languages, 120 languages that could have been uh, spoken. And third, and by the way, one individual maybe spoke a whole pile of different languages. We don't know how it all worked out, but there was a lot of people. Third, I would ask, why would they be amazed in verse 8 if the only thing that an Arab heard was Arabic and the only thing that a Roman heard was Latin? They wouldn't be surprised by that at all if they thought, oh, this guy's somebody that knows Latin. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews from around the world who knew those different languages. What was surprising to them was 
Look at it. There's a whole group of people who are obviously all from the same group. They're all Galilean and they're able to speak so many languages. This is phenomenal. What's going on here? That is what was surprising. And the bottom line is verse 4 clearly says the believers spoke in other tongues and no amount of hermeneutical gymnastics is going to make that go away. Now, some people, I think, are just embarrassed by that, some commentators, because it just seems awkward that 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is so different. Well, in my interpretation, it's not embarrassing at all because they're identical. They're not different at all. We're going to be showing how the two fit together. Now, the second error that verse 4 corrects, and this error is frequently held to by the same people, says that in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the tongues there is not a real language. It's not a true language. In other words, if you get a recording of this and you take it to a linguist, and they can break down even languages that they don't know and say, oh, yeah, it does have linguistic features here. And they can put it through a, a computer and they can see that there is syntactical structure even if they don't understand the language. And they say, well, you're not going to be able to do that with these tongues because it's not a real language that's being spoken. It is pre-rational communication or as some say, pre-linguistic communication between the Spirit and the Father. And there just happens to be some interface between the Spirit and our mind mouths and sounds come out. Sometimes there may be words and sometimes there may not be words, but it's not really communication. And I think we could agree in a general sense that you can have communication without language. You know, when somebody rolls their eyes at you, that's communicating something, right? When they groan over something, that's not language, but it communicates something. When somebody blushes, it's communicating. And sometimes we even loosely speak of body language, uh, at least I do, but it's not truly a language. And there are a number of charismatics who recognize this. One charismatic scholar said this, These top drawer theologians accepted the definition in the Milenus document of tongues, which is pre-rational utterance, which as I understand it, it would be a lot like laughing and crying. You don't teach a baby how to laugh and cry. It can do that before it can think. This is a primal cry of the heart. It is not a language. Tongues is not a language. We use sounds that indicate words that do not have meaning, such as oops, when we drop something, or uh-huh, or mm-hmm. Therefore, tongues primarily, as I understand it, after 32 years of praying in tongues, is the Holy Spirit in union with my heart, crying out for God, by which I release my voice to the Holy Spirit, so that this crying out can become an articulation. According to Romans 8.26, the Spirit prays in us with unutterable groanings, or some translate that, mistranslate it, inarticulate uh, groanings. He's, he goes on to say, I believe in Acts 2, there are two different gifts. The gift of tongues, by which the Spirit in the heart of the apostles was using their voices to praise God. But the gift which we experience from time to time is the anointing of the ears, where the people hear what the Lord wants them to hear. Now, my problem with this is that the word tongues means language and always has. It's used in the Old Testament Septuagint. It's used by secular people. It's used in the New Testament. Everywhere it's used, it means language. It doesn't mean anything else. It's ordinary language. And just to be fair, I should say that not all charismatics say that it's not a language. Uh, but it, it seems that the vast majority of... Um, uh, charismatics today have been forced to recognize this, and you might ask, why would they do that? 
Well, the cynic in me would say it's because there have been so many tape recordings of these top charismatics that have been sent through linguists and sent through computers to analyze it that they have to come up with an explanation as to why uh, that is... Um, why that is not the case, because all of these studies that have been done have shown that none of the indicators of language are present. None of them in, in these. Now, I should, I should back up and say that does not mean that there aren't two true tongues. Just what they have analyzed does not. And I personally believe that true tongues continues to exist on the mission field and that it's understood by the speaker and uh, they're able to communicate, and it doesn't resemble anything like what the charismatics are experiencing. Let me just give you a few stories to, to illustrate this. Uh, James Thomas, and you can interview these people yourself, but James Thomas, a missionary to Cordoba, Argentina, 1985, uh, he tried and tried to study Spanish, and he just couldn't get it. He was not a linguist. And so he just gave up. Uh, they flunked him, and he used interpreters. And so he would speak in English, the interpreter would speak in Spanish, and he didn't even understand what the interpreter was saying. But one Sunday night, all of a sudden he noticed, he understood everything that the Spanish guy was talking, and he started to try talking, and he was able to be fluent in Spanish. And not only was he fluent, everybody said that he had a perfect accent. And what was even weirder is when he went to other countries like Honduras and Mexico and Venezuela and other Spanish countries, he said they switched where he had a perfect accent for those countries. Now, his wife, and he's, he's continued to have that. He's never lost that. His wife received the same ability instantaneously, but she always speaks with an English accent. Why? Who knows? Why the difference between the two? Who knows? And then there's examples like uh, Ethel Roth and Norman Bonner who had the same phenomenon. I've had close friends who have experienced this. Some of them only experienced it during the time that they were on a short-term missions trip where they were able to fluently speak the other language. As soon as the missions trip was over, they didn't have that ability any longer. MAF pilot Bruce Cadd, physician Bruce Olson described native evangelists who, when they were going to a neighboring tribe that spoke a different language, were all of a sudden able to speak uh, in that language. And so I'm convinced from the Scripture that these things exist, and I think those kinds of things very much resemble what's going on in Acts chapter 2. But in any case, if you read the typical charismatic description of tongues in a book, and I've read over 50 books, maybe even more than that, but we'll be careful in how, uh, the estimate there, they tend to admit that the tongues they speak is not language. They call it pre-linguistic um, articulation or inarticulate speech. And so they've come up with all kinds of creative uh, ways. I've already explained one way of explaining Acts 2. They spoke in Hebrew. They heard it in a different language. Another one says, no, the disciples were just giving meaningless sounds as their uh, their flesh was interfacing with the spirit and it was gushing forth in noises and uh, the others were given the gift of interpretation and others say well it couldn't even be the gift of interpretation um, because why would an Arab uh, you know if he heard Arabic need it and so there are variations but most of them um, believe this was something unique here and it was not repeated in first Corinthians now take a look now at verse 4 and we see that this passage clearly contradicts this. It says, The Spirit gave them utterance. And the Greek word for utterance is defined in Strong's 
uh, dictionary as, quote, to enunciate clearly, to declare, to speak forth. In other words, it is articulate speech. To those that, that deny it's a, a true language, we say, first of all, he calls it a tongue. He calls it a true language. Second, he lists the languages in verses 9 and following. And third, it says the disciples spoke those languages. Verse 4, began to speak with other tongues. Verse 6, heard them speak in his own language. Verse 11, we hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. Now, there is another theory uh, out there that I'll just quickly throw out. Uh, and again, the cynic in me makes me wonder if this theory came up because um, 20 different people with gift of interpretation are played a supposed tongue and they give 20 different interpretations. But here's the theory. They say, okay, there's just noises coming out of these people's mouths uh, that's not really language. And then the spirit opens the eyes of believers as to what the Spirit wants them to say, but he may want this person to hear one thing and that person to hear another and the third person to hear a totally different question. But if you look at the text here, in verses 6 and 11, it makes clear that what was spoken was what was heard. They heard the wonderful works of God. Verse 11 says they were speaking the wonderful works of God. Now, let's dig just a little bit deeper into this by looking at question number three, and we're going to whiz through some of the material in your outline under question three, is the tongues in Acts 2 different from the tongues of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? And I've already hinted that the answer is no, it is not different. And I'm going to give several proofs that it's not different, but we're going to spend a fair bit of time on that first one, point number A, uh, which shows that in 1 Corinthians, just like in Acts, we're talking about a true language. And there are so many charismatics who deny this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10, he says, To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. First thing I want you to notice is that the word for tongues in 1 Corinthians is exactly the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2. It's glossa. It's... Uh, Maybe not a definitive answer, you know, that the two are the same, but I think the burden of proof is on those who say this is something totally different. Second thing to notice is the glossa, I've already mentioned, is the normal word for language. This is the word that was used in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 uh, in the Septuagint. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language. Well, in the Septuagint, it uses glossa there. All through the chapter, chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, all of the languages that were developed, it uses glossa, uh, tongues. Or you can look at the last book of the Bible, Revelation 7, 9, 10, 11. So many passages in Revelation where it talks about every nation, tribe, and tongue. Or as some translate it, every nation, tribe, and language. Acts 2, 6 and verse 8 interchangeably uses tongue and dialectos, dialectos, which means a dialect, a subcategory of, of language, and uh, phonos, which is translated language. Okay, look again at 1 Corinthians 12.10. It speaks of the interpretation of tongues. Now, the Greek word for interpretation is hermeneia, and it's the ordinary word for translating languages. Let me give you an example, John 1.42. You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, 
which is translated a stone. So when you translate Cephas, he says it means a stone. And that's, what's a translation? It's taking words from one language, transferring them into words in another language. If tongues was not a real language, you could not be translating it, right? Fourth, in the same verse, it says different kinds of tongues. Now, that's an interesting word because the Greek word is genos, from which we get genus, and in the dictionary, it refers to family, group, race, or nation. So it's another indication we're talking about languages from the nations. Um, not Babel. Babel doesn't have a genus. It doesn't have kinds. Uh, because how do you distinguish um, something that's not linguistically distinct from other Babel? Okay? Kinds must refer to true languages. Similar argument from verse 28 where he speaks of varieties of tongues. You can't distinguish varieties of inarticulate speech since its very inarticulateness keeps it from being able to be distinguished from other inarticulateness, right? Six, look at 1 Corinthians 14, 9. Chapter 14, verse 9. So likewise, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, notice he's saying it's not pre-linguistic. It's words that are spoken by definition. That means it is linguistic. Look at verse 19. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So don't buy the argument, hey, we can't analyze this with a computer and linguists will never be able to figure out if this has got language because it's not words. No, this says it does have words. It is language. Seventh, look at chapter 14, verse 10. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world and none of them is without significance. Now, I don't think you could get a clearer testimony to the fact he's talking about true language uh, uh, with that verse there. But I want you to also notice the phrase there, without significance. Afanos means, quote, incapable of conveying meaning as a language normally does, unquote. And so Paul is saying there isn't any language that does not have that characteristic of being able to convey meaning. That's as explicit a rejection of the idea. This is pre-linguistic or pre-cognitive or pre-rational communication as you can get. And yet Gordon Fee, very wonderful commentary he's written, but uh, leading Pentecostal, tries to get around this by saying, oh, he's just using... Tongues is not a language. He's just using language as an analogy, and there's only one point of comparison that he has, that just as you can't understand tongues, you can't understand a foreign speaker. Let me quote from him. He says, the analogy, and by the way, it's not an analogy, it's an identity, it's not an analogy, but he says, the analogy is not that the tongue speaker is also speaking a foreign language, as some have suggested, but that the hearer cannot understand the one speaking in tongues any more than he can the one who speaks a foreign language. And I would say, no, if that was the case, why in the world would he say there isn't any language without significance? That would be pointless to say if it had no relationship to the analogy. There is no analogy. And so the term languages of the world in verse 10 is precisely what Paul says that these Corinthians were speaking. And I think what's happened is that too many interpreters say, my experience doesn't line up with that. And so they allow their experience to dictate their exegesis. Uh, it's clear that the phrase kinds of tongues in chapter 12, verse 10, 
as identical to kinds of languages. Chapter 14, verse 10. Two phrases could be used interchangeably. Take a look at verse 11. Chapter 14, verse 11. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. So notice the words meaning, language, and foreigner. Uh, the, the term for foreigner in the Greek is barbaros, from which we get barbarian. And let me give you dictionary definitions of this. This is so parallel to what's happening in Acts chapter 2. Um, Lau and Nida's dictionary say, Barbaros refers to the native people of an area in which a language other than Greek or Latin was spoken. Uh, BDAG lexicon defines it this way. Non-Hellenic with focus on strangeness of language pertaining to using a language that is unintelligible to outsiders, foreign speaking, a foreign tongue, or pertaining to not Greek speaking. Now think about that. How could a tongue speaker be a barbarian to you in any sense whatsoever unless he was speaking one of the barbarian tongues, one of the barbarian languages? He couldn't. Paul is not complaining that they're speaking gibberish out there. He's complaining that they are speaking a true language without translating it and thus not benefiting the Greeks and the Romans who are in that congregation. That's the ninth proof for being a true language. Tenth, language, uh, tongues communicates since it's used for prayer in verses 14 through 15, giving of thanks in verse 16, for singing in verse 15. And all of those imply language. A prayer is not a prayer if it's not got propositional statements that, it is, uh, that it's communicating. Now, here's the response that charismatics many times give. They say, well, we understand that, but it's not the person who's praying. It's the Spirit who's praying to the Father. And these are just accompanying noises that go along. It's the Spirit that's praying. No, that, that's not what the text says. Look at verse 14. It says, For if I pray in my tongue, my Spirit prays. And uh, we'll get to next week whether the tongue speaker was able to understand that. I think you'll be surprised at how clear that really is. Um, but I don't see any way of getting around this. It is the person who prays, the person who sings. Verse 16, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, and in your outline I've given you, you know, over a dozen examples, that it's the person himself who is communicating uh, in these tongues. And so this is exactly parallel to Acts 2, verse 11, which says we hear them speaking in our own tongues of the wonderful works of God. Now look at verse 21 for the 11th proof that this is a true language. And this may seem tedious to you, but believe me, you need this if you're going to interact with uh, those who hold to this. These are sincere Christians who have sincerely experienced, you know, they've had a genuine experience. You can't say, oh, you didn't experience that. Say, get out of here. I did experience this. And so you don't question your experience. Um, in fact, I'm not sure you even have to question whether their experience is legitimate or not. What you need to show them is, you know, what your experience is, is not what Paul is talking about here. And gently keep bringing them back uh, to the Scriptures. Um, and I, like I say, I have no problem with reports of missionaries being given the ability to preach in, you know, a, a new language. That's wonderful. That's incredible. That's just not what's being described here. Um, what their experience is not what, what the, the charismatics are, 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 are describing. Look at verse 21. Paul here is basing the whole of his theology upon a passage from the Old Testament, Isaiah 28, 
that everyone agrees was the Assyrian language. He says, And the law is written with men of other tongues and other lips. I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now, if the tongues that Paul is talking about is not a true language, then the conclusion that he makes does not logically follow. There is no force to the therefore. Okay? Uh, verse 22 would not logically be a necessity unless the tongues in Isaiah 28, verses 11 through 12, which is what verse 21 is quoting, unless those tongues are identical to the tongues that Paul's saying is going on in Corinth. Now, I know I'm wearing you out with the proofs, but I do want you to come away from this sermon saying, man, I'm convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt. The tongues of Acts 2 is exactly the same as the tongues in, in Corinth. Pastor Kaiser, you know, he just... He just gave more than sufficient evidence. In fact, he wore us out with the evidence. I don't want you to be confused on this because if you do not have a good handle on this question, they're going to run all over you. You're going to get very confused in the arguments. It is a true language. It has to be. Okay, um, very quickly, both Acts 2 and... Um, ver, uh, 1 Corinthians 14.21... And Isaiah 28, verse 11, used the phrase other tongues. Now, that phrase implies language since it implies a different species of the same subject. In other words, the language that you already know. Does that make sense? See, if, if tongues is not a language, why would he use the term other? Okay? I've got my mother tongue, my mother language but then I'm going to speak in an other language. It implies the first thing you're comparing it to is a true language. And uh, I think everybody agrees that uh, with that in Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. They just have a hard time applying it to the other scriptures. Likewise, the phrase new tongues in Mark 16, 17 implies language. Otherwise, what is it new in comparison to? Okay, the new tongue is new in comparison to the old tongue that the person already knows. I'm going to skip over verse 14. You can read that for yourself. And um, I'm going to deal with a, a major objection that charismatics bring, uh, and that's point number 15. And every time I bring out some of these other things, they say, well, we're not speaking the language of humans. None of this applies. We're speaking the language of angels. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And I've just heard numerous arguments uh, from people who have said, that, you know, there's two kinds of tongues. There's tongues of men, that was an axe. There's tongues of angels, that's what Paul is talking about. And since angels don't communicate the way that we do, don't even try analyzing it in a, in a computer. You're never going to be able to figure out any language sequence there at all. In fact, they're going to accuse you of blasphemy for testing. And, and what I say, no, God has invited us to test First John chapter 4. We're to test prophets, we're to test spirits, we're to test things. That's why he's given us all this information is so that we can know what is the fake and what is the true. And so he wants us to test. Now, I'm not going to go into all my arguments as to why this doesn't hold water, but let me just give you some pointers. First of all, notice that the word tongues in verse 2, or language, modifies both what men and angels speak. Okay, there's one category of tongues, and it has two parts. There's of men and of angels. And as far as I'm concerned, that settles the point. 
a language is a language is a language. Angels don't speak something totally different than human languages. There's one category of language and there's lots of human varieties and there's at least two angelic varieties, it seems there, but it's still a language. Second, it's clear that angels communicate with God. Job 1, they communicate with each other. Isaiah 6 and a bunch of other passages I've got in your outline. They communicate with man. Daniel 9, many other passages. And this ability to communicate is part of the image of God in man. And all language has the same core linguistic structures or it would not be a language. And to go even farther and to say, as some people have said, well, this is pre-cognitive communication. This is... Uh, pre-linguistic and it's pre-rational. Just think of what that's saying about angels. That means no angel could talk with each other unless the Spirit gave them the gift of interpretation. They wouldn't understand what the other angels say. It'd just be noises coming out of their mouth. And so uh, it, it really destroys the meaning of tongue, language, speak, and communicate. Now, I do want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, this may indeed be here the language of angels that Paul was given the ability to understand. It's the closest example I could find to any angelic tongue because every other passage I've looked at, the angels, when they're talking to humans, they're using human language. But here it seems to be something different. And so we may get some instruction from this. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. And uh, verse 4, most commentaries believe that he is um, uh, being modest and referring to himself in the third person. So they most, mostly believe this is Paul. For, beginning at verse 3, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. If he was given the ability to understand an angelic language here, which many people believe, Paul was saying he did not have any human words which were adequate to express the things that he heard in this angelic language. Now, he had human categories of thought to understand it because he said that he heard it, but there were no human words into which he could put it. And he also indicates that the angels used words, right? He heard inexpressible words. What made them inexpressible was not because angels couldn't express it. They were expressing it. He heard it. He understood it. But he said, I don't even know how to put into words the things that I heard there. And I think it's because they're experiencing things we do not experience. And so they have to have language that we do not have. Uh, so it was inexpressible. Second, and to me this is interesting, Paul was told that it is not lawful for a man to utter the words that Paul had heard. Now, whether that's a total inexpressible words, and therefore it couldn't be translated anyway. That's the point. It's highly unlikely that 1 Corinthians 13.1 is calling Christians to speak in angelic language and then to have it translated. How can you translate that which is inexpressible? Rather, I think he is using a form of logic that argues from the higher what few, if any people, have been able to experience to the lower, the human languages that they've experienced. He's saying, you know, even if you had this, arguing down to the lower. And so here, here's his argument. He's saying, you know, even if someone were able to speak in the language of angels and you don't have love, it profits nothing. 
I think that's what he is really getting at. Now, next week, we're going to look at the purpose and the nature of, of tongues, and we're going to be seeing that it would be pointless to speak in the language of angels unless you had angels to speak to. Perhaps, you know, he did speak to angels at, 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 at this point. Now, when there are so many abundant references that we've already gone through to show that tongues are true human languages, we are on shaky ground indeed to say, hey, don't be testing my tongues. It can't be tested because it's angelic tongues. I say, no, it's called a language. It uses words. It's going to have the same features that human languages would have as well. So that's the first point of comparison. I think I've also demonstrated point B already that both passages have variety of tongues. Point C... Another point of comparison is that both passages indicate that tongues can be and were used to preach the gospel. Now, most people agree that in Acts 2, verse 11, that was, that was the purpose. But what about in Corinth? Obviously, Paul was trying to minimize the amount of tongues that was going on in the church service. And if you take a look at verses 18 through 19, we'll see about outside the church. First uh, Corinthians 14, 18 through 19. I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I might teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now that word yet shows the contrast between Paul speaking in tongues outside the church and his speaking in tongues inside the church. Now later he argues that if it's translated, it's equally edifying as prophecy. Okay, equally edifying to others. So you've got a 10,000 to 5 ratio of what he speaks outside the church, what he's willing to speak inside the church, or at least he at least indicates most of his tongue speaking was outside the church. Why? I don't think you could argue that it's because Paul spends that much more time in devotions than they did, or that he switched in his devotions from that many different language, if it's just a devotional language. I think the better answer is to say, and this is only a hint here, but that it relates to his job. Paul dealt with far more language groups than anybody at Corinth would because of his missions. Uh, and if he had to learn the way we learn a language ordinarily, he would not have been able to minister to nearly as many countries, nearly as many tribes as he was able to minister into. And he says, yes, of course it's useful to me, but in the church what you're doing, what is the point? You know, if there's obviously a foreigner there, then great. Let's use tongues, but we're going to give some rules. And next week, we'll, we'll give some of those rules and what they, what they are. The second hint is in verse 22, where Paul says that tongues was primarily intended for unbelievers, not for believers. Now, that's very interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22, Therefore, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Where does most of the tongues in charismatic circles go on? It's with believers in the church. It's not with unbelievers. In fact, it wouldn't make any sense to unbelievers if they talked. Whereas Paul says he was constantly using it with unbelievers. And so that's, I think, a parallel to what was going on in Acts 2, where he was talking to unbelievers. Third hint is that verse 5 says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but he didn't wish that in the church. Verse 27, he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue. In other words, we're not even counting on it always happening in services, but he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. 
Why? Well, that's because there's probably no more need for that within the church. But outside the church, wow, there is a tremendous need for this if you're involved in a mission situation. Now, my last point of comparison today is this. Tongues had multiple purposes in Corinth, just as it had multiple purposes in the book of Acts. Uh, Many uh, charismatics insist that tongues is only a prayer language. Only a prayer language, and it's only addressed to God. It's not addressed to men. And again, not all charismatics hold to this, but this is the dominant view. And on first sight, it may appear to be true. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. This is the verse that they will appeal to. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. There you have it. Does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Now, Gordon Fee, himself a Pentecostal, uh, interprets it this way. He says, although it is quite common in Pentecostal groups to refer to a message in tongues, there seems to be no evidence in Paul for such terminology. The tongue speaker is not addressing fellow believers, but God. Compare verses 13 through 14 and verse 28. Meaning, therefore, that Paul understands the phenomenon basically to be prayer and praise. Now, that's a very, very common viewpoint that it's purely a prayer language. <clears throat> and if, you, if you're mumbling very quietly, there's no need for an interpreter because you're just talking to God anyway. Okay? Very common uh, viewpoint in charismatic circles. Now, let me respond to that. First of all, such an interpretation makes an absolute contradiction in this chapter. And let me spell the contradiction out. Verse 2, taken out of context the way they do. Verse 2 says, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. But look at verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, etc.? He was clearly teaching these people with tongues. Look at verse 21. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. God intends them to speak to the people with tongues. Look at verse 22. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Verse 28 tells the person speaking in tongues, if there's no interpreter, let him speak to himself and to God. So it's clear tongues are indeed intended to be spoken to men and not just to God. In fact, the whole chapter argues that with the whole issue of edification. He says, don't even talk in tongues and let us it edifies the whole church. Everything you do, every verbal expression needs to be for the benefit of the people. And so it completely contradicts the whole tenor of what Paul is talking about there. And so the question is, okay, well, what is verse 2 talking about then? Well, it is saying that tongues, apart from translation, should have no place in the church whatsoever because it's not edifying people. What are you doing? If you're not translating, you're not doing the purpose that the church is gathered for, for edification. All you're doing is talking to God and everybody else has got blank stares. That's what he's saying. You're just talking to God, not to men. And I don't want you doing that, he's saying. I don't want untranslated tongues. That's his point. Now, there's more evidence that it's not simply a prayer language. In Acts 2, verses 4 and 18, tongues was clearly used to prophesy. Then in Acts 2, verse 11, it's clearly used for teaching. And since Peter says that Joel's prophecy is exactly what's describing what's going on here, there's one other thing. It's prayer in Joel chapter 2. Well, that's what you see in 1 Corinthians 4, 14. Look, for example, at verse 6. 
Uh, here he indicates, man, tongues has multiple purposes. Verse 6 says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? That word unless indicates that he's still speaking in tongues when he's prophesying, bringing a new revelation teaching. Now, keep in mind, I've already said, we... We, we believe that the Scripture clearly teaches that inspired revelation has ceased, prophecy has ceased, apostleship has ceased. And so we no longer have tongues that do those types of things. But can tongues be used to convey knowledge? Can it be used for teaching? I don't see any reason why it could not. In fact, it would be an incredible blessing to this congregation if God so gifted one of you and we were able to, when there were others that needed to hear it, to have translation going on of every aspect of the service. That would be an incredible blessing. I want to finish this topic next week, and I want to address two questions primarily. The first question is this. Did the speaker in tongues know what he is saying? Universal interpretation of charismatics that I've read anyway says no. Absolutely no. And uh, we're going to be challenging that. And I think how you come out on that question revolutionizes how you understand the passage. It has incredibly practical ramifications. And I think you're going to be surprised at how clear the text is on that. The second question I want to look at is, what rules should be followed for speaking in another language and translating? He lays down nine rules. And uh, uh, I think we may need to make sure we don't break the ninth rule, which is forbid not to speak in tongues, Right? That's the ninth rule. But every single Sunday in most charismatic churches, the other eight rules are systematically being broken. Paul didn't lay down those rules for, you know, just no reason. Uh, he knew that they would be needed. And so if somebody here can uh, translate my sermons into Japanese and Chinese and Spanish and other languages, please talk to me. We will put you to good use, especially on the mission field if you want to go. Um, there, there is a tremendous use for that, especially in the years to come. You're going to be in great demand. And by the way, even if you don't get that miraculously, you've just learned another language. We could sure use you. Uh, this is going to be really important. Um, in any case, next week we're going to pick up where we left off. I've already gone way too long. And we're going to try to tie things together, give some practical applications of, uh, of this whole subject. But let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the fact that you are a God of grace, that you are a God of miracles. And you can sovereignly distrib distribute those when and where you choose. And Father, we submit to that and we thank you for it. Uh, Father, I pray that you would bring correction to the church where it has strayed from your word and where there are so many abuses of, of uh, uh, these, these areas that we have talked about. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding and enable us to uh, live out your word with joy and to your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.